Will you turn with me, please, to the second chapter of the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 2. I'm in a reading group with uh, four other men and women that meet on Thursday nights, and we've been working our way through some of George MacDonald's sermons of late. And just this last week, we read uh, one of his messages on 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 3.18. He introduces his sermon by saying, I would not have you see the Apostle Paul, but I would have you see Jesus. And uh, I thought that's, uh, that's a worthy goal for all of preaching, all exposition of Scripture. Our purpose in studying the book of Joshua, for example, is not to uh, learn the historical, geographical facts of the book of Joshua. It's not even to understand the theology of the book of uh, Joshua. Our purpose is to see Jesus. As the hymn writer puts it, beyond the sacred page, we see you, Lord. Joshua 2 is uh, one of my favorite passages of scriptures. I, 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 of scripture, I've been dying to get here. It's the story of Rahab, the harlot. Now I want you to understand something about Rahab. Rahab was not a common street-walking, hotel-haunting tramp. She was what might be called today a high-class call girl. As a matter of fact, the, uh, the Canaanites gave a unique meaning to the, uh, to the term call girl because they believed that their prostitutes were called by the gods. They actually used the name that's used in the Old Testament for God, the Holy One, for their prostitutes. The uh, word in Canaanite is kudshu. It's in Hebrew, it's kodesh. It's the word that occurs in Isaiah 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Well, that word Kodesh or Kudshu in Canaanite was used of, of prostitutes because they were, they were very special people, pampered, plied with gifts, treated with high regard, highly respected. Um, Rahab was probably a very beautiful woman. The statuettes of these, uh, of these young women have been found and Tall, willowy, very beautiful women, beautifully coiffed and dressed. They, they went to the best places. They lived in the, in, on the right side of town. Um, Rahab had a high rise against the wall, as we read in the, in the passage. Highly respected, highly regarded people. But, reading between the lines, you begin to suspect that though Rahab had almost everything going her way, she was highly regarded. She was wanting and Waiting and searching for something more. Trying to answer Alfie's old question, what's it all about anyway? Why eat and drink and party and make money and spend money and buy things when you live in a world where everyone sooner or later dies? Doesn't make any sense. The impression I get in reading through her story, here's this, this, this dear woman sitting in her apartment day after day, just waiting for something to fulfill her and satisfy her. And God saw her lonely heart and sent a man her way. As a matter of fact, he sent two men. The story is, is told in, in Joshua 2. Let's read the first verse. Now Joshua, the son of, of Nun, sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim. Shittim is this Hebrew word for acacias which I'm allergic to. Every time I read that word, I sneeze. 
Two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, go view the land. Shittim was the base camp of, of, the, uh, of the Israelites. And they're told to go and view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came into the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab, and they, and they lodged there. Now, the, the story is kept uh, quite brief for our sake because the author is moving on to more important things. But you, can, you could construct a wonderful spy story out of this, uh, this account. These two uh, tough old Israeli soldiers make their way across the Jordan, which was in flood tide, and uh, probably dressed as Canaanites, perhaps as, as merchants, make their way into the city looking for a safe house. And uh, in pagan society, the safest place to be for a traveling salesman was in Rahab's establishment, and so they found lodging there in, in her place. Well, the, the story goes on. Apparently, Jericho's intelligence was as good as, 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 as Israel's. And the king of Jericho was informed. It was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. So that very night, they were spotted and they were turned into the officials. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. Actually, the text says, hidden him. Because there is almost a deliberate effort on the part of the author to single out one of these men. The woman had taken the two men and hidden him, and, and she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from. And it came about that when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on, on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to the Jordan, to the fords, and as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they, they shut the gate. So the king's men turn up at Rahab's house, and they, they knock on her door, and, and they say, turn over the men that, uh, that came from the, from, from the other side of Jordan, from the Israeli army. And Rahab says, men? What, what, what men? Oh, 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 those, those two Israelis. Well, they were here a little while ago, but, but they left. About an hour ago, they left. They're on their way to the fords of the Jordan, and if you pursue them quickly, you'll, you'll find them. And so she sends them off on this wild goose chase. And what she did was lie. Now, there have been a lot of efforts to try to clean, clean up Rahab's act. The rabbis tried to make her out to be an innkeeper rather than a prostitute, and there have been a lot of efforts to construe this as some kind of casuistry. The end justifies the means. But the plain, simple facts of the tale are that she lied. She told a great big fib. Now, the, the text wants us to understand that Rahab was, was a very sinful woman. She, she not only was immoral, she was immodest. She was very sinful, and she knew it. That's the whole point. She knew it. There's something to be said for being very sinful and knowing it. Something good to be said for, for being very sinful and knowing it. Jesus told a story once of... Uh, 
uh, a publican, a sinner, notorious sinner, and a Pharisee who came to the temple to pray. The Pharisees, you know, uh, he prayed to himself. He wouldn't probably wouldn't pray this out loud. He prayed to himself, God, thank you that I'm not like that fellow over there. And he points to the publican. The publican who, who did not know what he said, but certainly must have known what he thought, said, uh, he's right, he's, that's exactly the way I am. I wish I weren't like that either. God, be merciful unto me, a sinner. Now, one of the things you have to understand about this woman is, she, is that she is thoroughly sinful and she understood her sin. She was well aware of it. That was one of the very good things about, about Rahab. Now, what, what follows is, is her confession of faith, verses 18 through 14. She sends the, uh, the king's uh, men off on a wild goose chase. And then we're invited to listen in on her conversation with the two men in, in her house. Verse 8. Now before they lay down, she had come up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan. That's the campaign that's described for us in the book of Numbers that we refer to in the introduction to Joshua. We know what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og whom you utterly destroyed. And when we heard it, our hearts melted. And no courage remained in, in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now, therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth. And spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters with all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. So the men said to her, Our life for yours, if you do not tell this business of ours, and it shall come about when, when, not if, when the Lord gives us the land that we will deal kindly and, and faithfully with you. There are two very interesting things about this paragraph. First, Rahab says, I, I know what God has promised. She well understood God's word. She had only a modicum of truth, just the irreducible minimum of truth. But she knew that when God spoke, he spoke the truth and she believed it. She said, I know that God has given you the land. And that, of course, is the promise that was given to Joshua. Four or five times in, in chapter one, we're told that the land is given to, to Israel. It was given they were given the title deed based on the covenant that was originally made with Abraham and their, their integrity, their right to the land was secure. That was promised to Joshua. And Rahab says, I know that. I believe it. This land is your land. It's not our land. I understand that. So she believed God's word. The second thing that's interesting about Rahab is uh, the statement she makes about the dread of her people falling, uh, dread falling upon her people because of the victories that God had wrought in Israel. She says, we heard about the opening of the Red Sea. We heard about the destruction of the Amorites. For 40 years, the Canaanites had quaked in their boots waiting for Israel to, to move into the land. 
but she recognized that it was not because of their military might. If you compare the two militias, that of the Canaanites and, and that of the Israelites, the Israelites were ill-prepared. They, they weren't fighting people. They were farmers. They had pitchforks, you know. And uh, they didn't have any uh, war machines. They didn't have battering rams. They didn't have catapults. They didn't even have any horses. As a matter of fact, God didn't even permit them to take horses into the land. They uh, disabled the horses that they took from the Moabites. The uh, Canaanites had chariots, and they had horses, and they had catapults, and they had war machines, and they had incendiary arrows, and they had a trained militia, and they were behind these walled cities. I put uh, on the, or, or actually Judy Johnstone put on the bulletin, uh, a picture of the city of Megiddo. Now, you won't find a picture of Jericho because no, no one lo- knows what Jericho looked like at Joshua's time, but it would have looked very much like the city of Megiddo. And that's uh, four or five hundred years later that that artist reconstruction but it gives you some idea of the size of these cities and the kind of uh, and how difficult it would be to breach these walls. Nevertheless, the, the Canaanites were were quaking in their boots. Why? Because they realized that God was fighting for Israel. And you'll notice what Rahab says: It is the Lord your God. And then later she names him Yahweh. She understood. So Rahab had what we would call the irreducible minimum of faith. She believed that God is, that he exists, and that he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. And so for for all those months, she had been sitting in her apartment, reaching out to God, longing for him, yearning for him, asking for him. And as James puts it, if you draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. He'll see to it that you get to know him. Which brings to my mind the question of why the spies went into Jericho anyway. If you read the story carefully, there was not one bit of intelligence that they brought back that was not already known. They, they didn't come back with uh, some note of easy access through the water system. You know, it wasn't, they didn't find a weak spot in the wall. They didn't find a place that was less well defended than other parts of the city. They didn't come back with one bit of information other than what they already knew. They simply reconfirmed that God had given to them the land. That's right at the tail end of the story. We'll read that statement later. You know why those men went into Jericho? They went into Jericho because God was reaching out to that desperate woman. And that's the only reason they went into Jericho. God knew where she was. And he sent those men in to touch her. Now, she asked for a promise. Her uh, situation was uh, was very precarious. She was the only, at this point, the only believer in the entire city. This is the sort of thing you're going to find everywhere uh, in every culture. The mass of, of men and women are in rebellion against God, but here and there you'll find someone who's reaching out for God. She really exists as a kind of counterculture person. Here is here is Jericho. Its walls a, a mute witness to their rebellion against God and their resistance to the people of God. But within the city, here's one woman who wants God in her life. It reminds me of the story of Sodom. And Abraham's prayer, if there is one righteous person in there, would you save the city? Had he worked his prayer down to that, yes, God would have spared the city for that one righteous person. One person is infinitely valuable. He'll go after one person, you see. 
But her situation is very precarious. She's all alone in the city. and She needs some promise, some guarantee that her life will be spared when the invasion takes place. Because both she and the spies are thinking of the typical siege. You know, it would go on for months. They would literally starve the people out. And then there would be bloody fighting in the streets. And, and she felt that her life was, was very much in jeopardy. And so she asked for some pledge. Verse 15, we're, to, we're told that she let them down by a rope through the window for her house was on the city wall. So that she was living on the wall. That was one of the best locations in any of these wall cities. And she had said to them, go to the hill country, lest the pursuers happen upon you and hide yourself there for three days until the pursuers return. Then afterward, you may go on your way. And the men said to her, if you break your covenant, understood, we shall be free from this oath. Unless when we come into the land, you tie this rope or this cord of scarlet uh, thread is the way my text put it, but it's actually it was a rope. Unless you tie this, this scarlet rope in the window through which you let us down and gather to yourself into the house your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household, and it shall come about that anyone who goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on your head, and we shall be free. But anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. But if you tell this business of yours, of ours, then we shall be free from the oath which you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. You see, she had aligned herself with the people of God. Unlike her own kind. Her unkind were ungodly. But rather than align herself with this rebellious city, she aligned herself. She alone of all the people in the city. And, and from our standpoint, the least likely person to align herself with God. She she would not betray them. She said, according to your words, so so be it. So she sent them away and they departed and she tied the, the scarlet rope in the window. That's an example to me of, of blatant faith. She, as we would say today, she let it hang out. She she wanted everyone in the city to know that she had identified herself with with the people of God. Now this was uh, this scarlet rope was their climbing rope. They, the spies had brought it into the city, wrapped around their bodies underneath their overcoats, you know, with their Uzis uh, hanging down the back, and they had slipped into the city. And this was their way of escaping. Uh, there are a lot of crevices and canyons and caves in that part of the world, and they assumed that they would need this rope, and so they had brought it in with them. I don't know why it was red. It was probably made out of hemp, and it was it was dyed red, and and for them, there was no particular significance in the color, but for us, it, the color has great significance, and as a matter of fact, it's even, it's even related in the story to the notion of blood. From the very beginning of the church era, as far back as you can go, Christian expositors and teachers and students have, have seen this rope as a symbol of the blood of Christ. The, the cross, you see, is an event not just in time but in eternity. Rahab's salvation is based upon the sacrifice of Christ on the cross just as ours is. We look back. She looked forward. She didn't understand it all. But this rope was the pledge to her that her life would be spared, that she had identified herself with the people of God, and her salvation was, was sure and certain. And I think of the hymn, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. 
we would say using that old term, she was under the blood. The blood of Christ cleansed her from all unrighteousness. But what about her past? She was a wanton woman. The blood of Christ cleansed her from all sin. So the uh, spies uh, hide themselves themselves off into the mountains. Off to the west, there's a rugged range of mountains that are uh, a lot of canyons and, and deep deep uh, caves. They apparently hid there for the three days and then made their way back to the Jordan, crossed it, which was no mean feat since the Jordan was at flood stage. I thought maybe they had a Zodiac stashed in the reeds or something. And they slipped across the uh, river and made their way back to the camp and made their report, which is, was essentially a confirmation of what they already knew, that God had given them, uh, given them the land. Verse 24 Surely the Lord has given all the land into our hands. It's as good as done. We still have to conquer the land, but the title deed is ours. The Lord has given us all the land, and all the inhabitants of the land, moreover, have melted away before us. Now, that's a story. And if it ended there, we would we could be sure, given the character of God, that Rahab was well provided for. But we don't have to leave it there. There's a sequel. It's in chapter 6. Would you turn there with me, please? Chapter 6, verse 22. This is the part about the story that I love. And Joshua said to the two women, uh, two men who had spied out the land. And this is after the conquest of Jericho. Uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 21 describe the fall of Jericho, which, as you know, is cataclysmic. We're going to talk about that in a few weeks. They walked around the city. All the way around every day for seven days, seventh day, they walked around seven days, boom, the walls fell down and they walked in through the breaches in the wall. You remember Rahab's house was on the wall, but that apparently was the section of the wall that didn't fall. God was looking out after Rahab. And so the first thought that Joshua had, and perhaps he was reminded by uh, one of the spies, was to rescue uh, Rahab. And, and, and it's interesting, notice she's called the harlot. And in almost every reference to her in the New Testament, she's referred to as Rahab the prostitute, not the ex-prostitute. That, that had been her life. They'd go into the harlot's house and bring the woman and all she has out of there as you have sworn to her. In the meantime, she'd gone out through the city and gathered up her family and she told them the good news of God and they had believed. They had to believe in order to gather in her house and they came into her house. Reminds me of uh, Peter's statement to the, to the, the jailer. When the, jail, you know, when the jail fell down, the jailer knew his neck was on the line because he was responsible for these prisoners. And he said, what should I do to be safe? Probably thinking, how can I save my skin? And Peter, wise witness that he was, picked up on that and said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved and all your house if they believe. So the jailer gathered all of his household together and Peter preached the gospel to them. And evidently Rahab went out through the streets and she knocked on doors and she gave them the gospel. She talked, she didn't know much, but she, she imparted what she knew. Gathered her family into her house. The red rope was hanging out of the window. And, uh, the, the spies were able to, to save her and bring, bring her and her family out of the house. The young men who were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all she had. No husband, by the way. Uh, they also brought out all of her relatives, and and here the Hebrew text literally says, "Let them rest." 
gave them rest outside of Israel. Brought them over to Shittim, the base camp, and fixed a, a place for them to stay, pitched a tent. They were probably uh, very anxious during the siege, wondering what was going to happen, and overwrought, stressed out, and so they let them rest outside the camp. And they burned the city with fire and all that was in it, only the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron they put into the treasure of the house of the Lord. However, Rahab the harlot and her father's household and all she had, Joshua spared, and she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day. And that was written by the author of Joshua, whom, who, who is anonymous. We don't, we don't know who wrote the book. But it was a contemporary of Joshua's, apparently one of his younger officers, we surmise. And, uh, you know, he, if you happen to visit Israel during that time, he'd take you over to her house and introduce you to Rahab and, and her family and her husband. Because we know from the book of Ruth and from the genealogy in, uh, in Matthew that she married an Israelite. Uh, his name was Salmon, S-A-L-M-O-N. If you want to check this out on your own, you, you can read the book of Ruth. And right at the very end of Ruth, there's a genealogy that leads up to David. And it's mentioned that Rahab's husband was a, was a young man named Salmon. And then if you go to Matthew 1, you'll read that uh, Salmon was the husband of Rahab, who was the mother of, guess who? Boaz. Boaz, who married Ruth. And rabbinic rumor has it, though there's no way to know for sure, but the rabbis might, may very well be right, because they have traditions that go way back. The, the, the rumor is that Solomon was one of the spies. Wouldn't that make a neat love story? Don't ever let Hollywood get hold of that. They'll, they'll botch it all up. Some of you that are good writers, I wish you'd write a novel. And, you know, it's just, you know, here's this Israeli, uh, Special uh, forces Greenberry type who parachutes in and <laughs> he leads this young woman to faith and and they and they get married and and she has a son and, and his name is Boaz and when you read the story of Ruth Boaz comes out as a man of tremendous integrity and morality head and shoulders above anyone else in the nation and I ask myself where, where did he get that concept of morality from his mother, Rahab, the prostitute, who had been brought in. I think that phrase is so, so significant. She was brought in. As Robert Frost says, the family takes you in. So here is this woman who wasn't even an Israelite. She was a Canaanite. And she wasn't even a nice Canaanite. She was a prostitute. She may have been highly respected in Canaanite society, but not an Israelite society. But she was like those, you see, that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 6, who once were one of these. Adulterer, fornicator, homosexual, lesbian. Those that have born children out of wedlock. One of these been brought in, loved and accepted. And she had a tremendous impact upon her family and an enormous impact upon upon the next generation. And if you follow through the genealogy in, in Matthew 1, guess who was the end product of that line? Our Lord Jesus. He's part of the line. 
And it was consummated in, in, in the birth of Christ. And if you look at that genealogy carefully, there are five women mentioned. Mary, of course, is the last, and there are four that are mentioned by name. And the four that are mentioned before Mary were all wanton women. They had some kind of sexual problem or some kind of moral problem. Tamar was involved in an incestuous relationship with her father-in-law. She's one of the women mentioned. Another is Bathsheba, who is specifically mentioned in Matthew 1 as having been the wife of Uriah when she was involved in that affair with David, and who was the, who was the mother of Solomon, who was in the line that produced the Lord Jesus. And there's Ruth. Uh, I don't like to go into detail because people get upset, but, but Ruth, frankly, was anything but a paragon of righteousness. She was a Moabitess, and she was very confused in her morality until she was brought into Israel, and until after she married Boaz, had some real problems. And even Mary, of course, was accused of, of having a child out of, out of wedlock. It wasn't true, but she bore that accusation throughout her entire life. It just strikes me that our Lord is not embarrassed to be identified with Wanton women are those that are suspected of being wanton. As Hebrews says, he's not ashamed to call us, to be called our brother. He's part of that line, you see. Now, I, I would like to draw two conclusions from this, from this story. There are two points that need to be made. There are Rahabs out there. I know that, and you know that. They're sitting right here. Women who have have wasted their lives, blasted them with immoral actions, perhaps an, an adulterous affair, a casual affair, a not-so-casual affair, uh, a lesbian relationship, uh, perhaps you've born a child out of wedlock, and you, and you feel that your, your life is at an end. There's no way to reconstruct it. Well, I want you to understand that Jesus receives sinners gladly. The important thing is to know that we're sinful and to admit it. You see, Jesus said of the two men in the temple that one man went away justified and one did, one did not. The man that went away justified is the one that said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And, and there are men, you see, who have prostituted their lives as well. And if any of us, men or women, We'll simply say, Lord Jesus, forgive me. Be merciful to me, a sinner. And accept the sign of the red rope, the sign of the blood of Christ, and step under that, that symbol. Then he is faithful and just to forgive us all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And even though the, the memories may be there, and even though you may still in your mind bear the name of, of harlot, You've been cleansed, not whitewashed, but washed as white as snow. You need to know that. You need to understand that. Some of you have accepted Christ and you're still questioning His grace and His forgiveness. You need to know that He's faithful and just to forgive. And He wants to put you back on your feet and begin to use you to have the same kind of influence and impact upon others that this, this woman had on her culture and on the generations to follow. Now, that's the first thing I'd like to say. There are Rahabs out there. The second thing I'd like to say is that there are Rahabs out there. 
The, the young woman who is sitting across the aisle from you who talks too much and smokes too much and parties too much and wears too little uh, may very well be a Rahab. The person that you overlook, the person that you think may not have any interest at all in spiritual things, maybe just like this woman, a hungry heart, a searching spirit, you know, he, she, she's waiting for someone. And guess what? You are her messenger. Did you notice in the sequel, and when I read this this time, it just popped off the page at me. Look at verse 25. Rahab the harlot and her father's household and all she had, Joshua spared, and she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day, for she hid the... What? The messengers. I thought they were spies. I thought this was a recon unit. No. They were messengers. And that's what you are. You, you thought you were in that office to make money, but, but you aren't. You're in that office as God's messenger. Or the man up, up the street who is uh, very much upward mobile, who has all the toys and has it all together. God has put you on that street to, 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 to be his messenger. See, the way you make your living and where you live is simply a means to the end of being a messenger of the grace of God to the Rahabs that live all around us in the midst of our our society that is so much in rebellion against God and so much resistant to His grace. Here and there you're going to find men and women who have hungry hearts. And we live not to make money, not for praise, not for personal gain, but we live to be His messengers to proclaim the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. The wonder of it all is that God has chosen to woo and win His own creation. And He's chosen us to be a part of that process. Oh, that's such good news. I want to tell you a story. I, I, I related it a couple of years ago, but it's so fitting I just have to tell you again. Uh, a few years ago, I was in a Bible study with Carolyn, and we were talking about the rich young ruler and his question, who is my neighbor? And she raised that question, who is my neighbor? And the teacher of the class answered it in, in the same terms that the Lord did. Uh, you know, the Lord followed up that question with the story of the Good Samaritan. The point of the Good Samaritan is the next person you meet who has a need, that's your neighbor. So... Um, uh, the next day, she, Carolyn was driving through Palo Alto down Middlefield Road. We were living in California at the time. One of those typical freezing, cold, foggy San Francisco Bay Area days. And uh, uh, saw a young couple standing on the on the curb. And she stopped, picked him up, and began to chat with him. Had a baby. That's the reason she picked him up. And uh, found out the young woman was Jewish. She was from New York City. Uh, she was traveling with her friend who was from Puerto Rico. His name was Junior. And the child was illegitimate. All that she found out in about five minutes of conversation. So she began to uh, chat with him about spiritual things. Found out that uh, Junior really wasn't too interested. But Diane, who was the Jewish woman, said uh, she really was interested. In, but she had never read the Bible. She just heard about it. And uh, I happened to have a New Testament that I tossed up on the glove compartment of the uh, up, on, up on the dash of the car, brand new leather New Testament. <laughs> so my my uh, 
My sweet wife picks it up, hands it to Diane, says, here, you can have this if you'll read it. So she began to read it. Carolyn followed up with her, had her in her home. We had dinner with them a couple of times, and Carolyn helped them find an apartment. And they got thrown out of one apartment, so she helped them find another. In the course of time, this woman met Christ. Carolyn led her to the Lord. And uh, Junior left. He couldn't. He didn't want any part of it, so he went back to New York, left her with this uh, illegitimate child. Well, to make a long story short, she married a missionary, a Jewish missionary, with uh, the American Board of uh, Missions to the Jews. She is now in New York City, a street missionary working with uh, Jewish men and women uh, walking the streets of that, of that city. And we happened to pick up a tract the other day in which she told about her conversion. didn't mention Carolyn by name. It just mentioned the woman who came out of the rain and who picked her up and who led her to Christ. And, and you see where she is today, and I say, boy, that you know, there's a modern, contemporary example of what we're talking about. The least likely person you would ever imagine who has a heart that's open for God. And again, may I say, the wonder of it all is that God has chosen to woo and to win His own creation, and He uses us in the process. Now, if you're a Rahab... And, and I know, and you know, that you're out there. I, I just want you to understand again that, that none of us ever outsend the grace of God. It, in terms of the hymn that we just sang, His grace is greater than all of our sin. That longing, that yearning that you have in your heart is really God calling you to Him. As Augustine said, God puts salt on our tongue to make us thirsty for Him. That's where that longing comes from. He wants you to worship Him. Just as He sought out the woman at the well, He's seeking you out and calling you to Himself. All you have to do is respond. Simply to say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Come into my life. Cleanse me from all my past, all my guilt. And give me a fresh start in life. Paul said, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. Every day is a new beginning in Christ. Will you receive him? John said he came to his own and his own didn't receive him, but as many as received him. To them he gave the authority to be called and to call themselves the sons of God. If you want to be brought into the family, if you want to be included in, all you have to do is, is receive his gift. Everything is there for the asking and nothing can be earned. You, you just have to ask for it. And then for the rest of us, let's pray that as God's people will be, become increasingly sensitive to the people around us, alert to their need. Let's pray that we'll not write anyone off because they seem so far out or so far behind. Let's ask God to make us His messengers, His angels to people in need. 
Lord, how grateful we are for this passage. It, it teaches us again about your wonderful grace. Though you are a God of judgment, as the Old Testament tells us, that's your strange work. It's not what you want. You will appeal and appeal and appeal to us until our hearts are so hard. Further appeal uh, is unnecessary. But Lord, your, your, your greatest desire is to, is to see us respond and, and to receive your grace and your love and your forgiveness. And we're reminded again, Lord, that there are people who have yet to receive that grace and we want to be your secret agents dispersed throughout, throughout our society at every level of interest and vocation and responsibility taking seriously the task to be a messenger of good news. Give us the courage to do so. Help us to forget ourselves and what people may think about us and the danger to our own life and limb. Lord, help us to be bold, brave, always courteous, but straightforward witnesses to the truth. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.